everybody, welcome to Academics of PA. Last year we set out to record an interview with Jim Savara. We were kind of in the staging process of getting that scheduled and lo and behold one day I look out my office door, he's walking down the hall, stops in and says, well, how about we record now? So it was a very kind of spur of the moment interview, but also that kind of makes it a little bit more fun and interesting. So what do we do? Well, I had a microphone sitting in my office. I turned on the record, turned the microphone towards him, and we kind of sat down and started going. And what you're about to listen to is that conversation. So it's a neat one. It is a little bit different because we do talk a lot about the aspect of his research himself, talking about you know, the concept of ethics and incorporating ethics into the MPA course or into the MPA classroom, which I think is something that is definitely worthy of discussion. So if nothing else, hopefully you find this interesting. But Welcome to this week's episode. Uh, one of the first questions I wanted to ask was kind of how you got interested in public administration, partly because your background was in history and I believe international relations, which interesting on its own, but going from international relations over to public administrations, a little bit of a change. Well, it definitely was. Uh, there were a number, number of shifts along the way, and I think that makes me realize that in, in, you know, a key thing about, about thinking about a career is to be open to opportunities. You need to have you need to have goals and plans to achieve those goals, but you also need to be flexible and able and willing to to take advantage of new kinds of possibilities that emerge, and also respond to changes in your own interests and what what really what really turns you on. I guess one other one other thing about opportunities sometimes they're necessities, uh, but they can still uh, lead to something to something useful. Uh, what was the opportunity change the necessity? That sparked the shift in yours over to public administration. Well, it wasn't a necessity that made that, that was responsible for that shift, um, but uh, I had I did uh, major in history as an undergraduate and uh, entered a, a, a doctoral program at Yale in international relations, which was a, uh, a two-year program that then was linked to entering. Uh, the doctoral program in one of the departments that contributed to the program. And so my intention was to shift to political science, uh, to go into political science with a PhD, but with an international focus. Probably the event that, that well, a number of things that contributed to a shift of interest. Uh, one specific event was the 1968 election, getting involved in uh, being involved in anti-war activities and then involved in Gene McCarthy's campaign uh, in uh, in New Hampshire, um, and after that, then um, staying involved with some uh, local political groups in New Haven that created a democratic reform movement and uh, ran candidates for alderman and board chairperson, and uh, so I got involved in those contests as well. So that was the, so as I re-entered now, so took a year off actually after the masters to to worked on campus and, and I actually worked for the, uh, the democratic reform movement. So when I re-entered uh, graduate study full-time, uh, my focus had shifted to American, but American politics uh, with a strong focus on electoral, on electoral issues. And, and my dissertation uh, was on changes in voting behavior uh, and uh, looking for evidence of, uh, of realignment, uh, major periods of realignment, and what evidence there was that in the late 60s, early 70s, that we might be entering into a realignment period. What was it about international relations that first pulled you in? Well, I, you know, I think that uh, from, you know, what happens in terms of interactions between countries, mm -hmm. um, 
obviously important differences in, in orientation and political philosophy that are that are displayed on the international scene, but all the way down to uh, to the the the, uh, the community level. Uh, how do you deal with problems of of development and particularly economic and community development uh, in underdeveloped countries? Uh, so that that interest in locality was was present there. Uh, and uh, it could have been an area, it could have been an area of focus, but on the international scene. But so the shift was to to the American um, to, to, to the American scene, uh, but but still very much with a focus on political science. I took my first position at UNC Greensboro, uh, and that was for a position that was going to involve primarily teaching courses in urban politics. Uh, this was a new department. There had not been a political science department at UNCG before. And uh, so a, a lot of new faculty members are developing courses from scratch. And so I was working in the area of, of urban government, uh, urban politics, urban policy, uh, and uh, uh, getting interested in and doing starting research on uh, elements of the local political process. Okay. So you know, UNC Greensboro's MPA program is still in the poli side there even now. That's so right, there is right. kind of a fairly good, I guess, kind of maybe a starting ground between the connection between poli sci and PA. Right. But it was, I think that's the case. Uh, the public administration program was an example of the necessity that's linked to an opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, as we developed this public administration program, uh, we had not been teaching any public administration before that. Uh, there was interest in officials who worked in local government in Greensboro and High Point and other, other governments in the area who were interested in having the opportunity for professional development. Uh, so we, uh, I think it was it was uh, 77 that it began, so they celebrated their 40th anniversary a few years ago. And um, we developed those. Uh, we developed the courses uh, for it was a fairly young faculty, and, and it, it actually our students and and faculty members were pretty much the same age, and and uh, we we learned a lot from each other. Okay, but there was the need to uh, to develop a course in urban administration, which was a new a new undertaking, and uh, and that then produced a shift. I mean, I had been looking at. Uh, local elections. I've been looking at the role of the of the mayor uh, in uh, in city government, and um, and that's a line of research that I've that I've stayed with, uh, particularly trying to understand you know how mayors uh, in council manager cities uh, can can make a contribution. Uh, there was sort of a happy circumstance that I had come from New Haven, Connecticut, which had Richard Lee, who was one of the model mayors in the country, uh, made famous by, by, by Robert Dahl, uh, and then happened uh, to be in Greensboro, where a mayor was operating who everybody agreed made a difference. But why did he make a difference? What was the contribution uh, that this mayor was making since he clearly didn't match the executive mayor model? Uh, so that that was probably uh, the, the most important in kind of entree uh, into understanding the council manager form of government better. Uh, and so that was a beginning uh, to, to sort of a transition toward public administration. But having a program makes it, made that transition much more important and much more complete. Thinking about that man as a mayor, you said that was being successful in Greensboro. Right. What was it about them that was kind of seeing that success or prompted that success? Well, that was what the, that was what the challenge was, and we finally and, and I had 
the systems from uh, from a great uh, graduate. Uh, uh, well, we didn't have a graduate program at that point. He was an undergraduate, but uh, uh, he had been in the military and 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 so came in with with background experience. And he was uh, he was a research assistant, and we looked at it together. And finally, wound up looking at business literature to think, well, what is it about the successful leader of a business organization? Uh, and and finally, came to the realization that. The council manager mayor can make a, a great contribution as a facilitator, uh, as the person who helps the parts work together effectively, uh, not, as, not as, as the person who imposes an agenda and gets or uses the powers of office to get everyone to follow it, uh, helping to um, ensure there is high level of communication between the manager and the rest of the council, between the public and, and the administration. And um, so that was the that that was the core idea of uh, of research that uh, that began, and then done two different uh, books of case studies uh, looking at the mayors, and the model has developed further. I think what I've added um, in in the last in the last version ten years ago or so was that not only are these mayors major contributors as facilitators who make everything work together more smoothly. But also, they can be visionaries uh, who help to build a, a shared commitment uh, to a common vision within the city council. Uh, and uh, and I think we've got many examples of such mayors uh, and council manager cities. Uh, and um, might even have uh, you know have a mayor uh, from a council manager city running for president, which will be uh, a, a unique experience. He did spend time as. Uh, as secretary as in urban development as well i think the uh, uh, the mayor in, the mayor in durham currently is, is very okay. impressive and very it's interesting to watch how he really uh, re reflects uh, those those approaches and, and it makes a big difference. I thought you were talking about Pete Boutier for a minute. No, there. not Boutier, because I think Boutier is in a mayor council city uh, and will be able to say yes, I should know uh, that, too. that uh, you know, I have executive mm -hmm. uh, executive mayor experience. But Castro was a uh, um, uh, it was mayor of San Antonio and was effective in the way the council manager uh, mayors can be effective. In terms of kind of thinking about that you have this line of research kind of focused on the former government, the contributions that it makes that's extended over a long career, how do you kind of continue to keep working in the area? I know there's probably a better way of saying it. Not that it's thinking more in terms of a career focused in one area. Mm -hmm. How do you keep from getting bored? Well, I mean, it's one, <laughs> but it's one broad area, and right. and it's not the only area. That's another reason, but uh, but but that core area of research has continued to evolve, um, beginning with the mayor and uh, and uh, and looking at differences okay. in the kinds of elections used mm -hmm. in city councils, particularly those that use council manager form. Uh, it became important teaching urban management courses uh, to better understand the council manager form of government and the role of the manager, the contributions that the manager makes. And uh, in time, that uh, that led really two different directions in, in research. One, the main course was trying to understand council manager relations uh, and how that relates to this, the, the big policy versus administration uh, relationship uh, in the field. Uh, as it uh, and the, the way it would be had traditionally been articulated as a dichotomy model, uh, <laughs> and uh, so that that sparked a line of research, both focusing on council manager cities and 
comparison of, of, of some matching council manager and mayor council cities mm -hmm. uh, to better understand uh, the differences in roles uh, and sort of leading to the to the big conclusion uh, that separation of powers, not surprisingly, can produce, uh, can, can engender patterns of conflict uh, between executives and legislatures, governors, legislatures, mayors, councils. Um, and uh, the council manager form is our unique experience in the United States in the public sector uh, with a unitary form of government. Uh, and how does it, what are the dynamics? And uh, so that, uh, that, that is, a, is a big question that I kept exploring. Pent spent more and more uh, focus on the role of the manager on how the manager contributes. Clearly, the manager is not just sitting there waiting for instructions to come right. from the council and then carrying them out. Uh, and it seemed that um, there was a continuing, a continuing debate. You know, now we're, we're into the you know, late 70s and 80s. There was a continuing debate about the policy role of the manager. You know, the research that I and others have done uh, has shown that really was never really in doubt. It, it, what happened, it happened, it happened from the beginning. And in fact, it was central uh, to the second model city charter, which recommended the council manager form, which was very explicit about the expectation that the manager would be a policy advisor to the council and would encourage that they uh, that, that they adopt wise courses of action for the city. But so that was one thing that that uh, that, that was added to the uh, to the research agenda over time. Then looking at some looking at some shifts. I mean, I did come out with a uh, an alternative to the dichotomy model uh, in the in the eighties. Something I call the dichotomy duality model. That there may be this this uh, division of function and responsibility between setting the broad mission for the city on the one hand and managing the affairs of the organization on the other hand. But in between the development of policy and the implementation of that policy was a duality, separate but intermixed uh, elements in the in the political process. And there was evidence to support that generalization. Ten years later, I actually found that there seemed to be a shift with managers taking over a bigger and bigger role, even in the mission area. The councils tended to be relatively, relatively passive uh, and responding to the issues or concerns or long-term questions that managers would, managers would raise. And I think that as local local affairs have become even more complex, uh, that's even more the case now. Uh, again, it's not that managers are usurping the policy-making role of the council, but rather the councils are very um, dependent upon and look to the manager for making proposals, filling in content, doing the background research, increasingly involving citizens in the discussion about what those policy options should be. So I think that's a, that's been an area of, of continuing development. A distinct uh, topic related to that area uh, has been looking at juristic, at looking at cases where a change of form of government has been considered uh, and what the particularly shift from council manager to mayor council form from the council manager perspective, the abandonment of the council manager form. So what were the, uh, what were the arguments that were actually used? What kind of campaign was run? 
And that was another project that uh, has yielded, I think, important insights and has also helped to reinforce this notion that there still tends to be this limited view of both the mayor and the manager. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay, so, uh, you know, in that, you know, the summary of the critics of the council manager form may, uh, the mayor is just a figurehead, doesn't do, has no power, doesn't do anything. And uh, and the manager is is simply uh, carrying out what the council tells him to do. I mean, he's responsible for the day to day management of the city when managers, in fact, do far more. So, so I think we need to to better articulate uh, and more clearly explain what the real dynamics of the form is. When you've looked into or in conducting the research in the area, you ever come across instances where you're trying to either meet with city officials or look at a location and you've got pushback uh, because they're the fear that you're going to try and change something that the location might not have wanted to adjust to? No, no, I haven't gotten pushback. It's really, uh, it's been, um, uh, been, been positive. A number of the projects uh, have involved face-to-face interaction, so visiting cities, interviewing officials, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and there's really been uh, been been good response. And that's, of course, a very interesting experience to uh, uh, to, to have those interactions. Uh, I met once with a strong mayor in a city, and we're talking about the budget process, and he discussed what he had done to put the budget together, and he said, well, here, you can have a copy of it, a thick bound book, and I took it and looked at it, and his name was 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 in big letters on the front, and I said, oh, I can't take this one, it has your name on it, and he said, all of the budgets have my name on it. So, <laughs> so anyway, there's some these interpersonal dimensions that can be very mm-hmm. interesting. So that, that actually has been has been good response. Huh. The um, and uh, you know decent response to surveys as well. Have you noticed any kind of changes over time um, in terms of people becoming a little bit maybe less willing? No, I don't think okay. so. I don't think so. I mean, it's always the the challenge of making arrangements, making contact. Mm-hmm. Selling your idea so that they're they're interested in being involved, uh, but um, that there I think has continued to be to be interest and uh, uh, and no resistance. I I still want to to get out a a more succinct, readable kind of set of arguments about uh, th- this choice of form of government issue and um, something that represents sort of a departure from what would have been the academic orientation, an actual set of key arguments for retaining the council manager form. Uh, I think that the, the evidence shows and understanding that the dynamics illustrates that it, it, it really is a superior approach uh, for local governments to use. Uh, they don't have to follow the separation of powers model at the state and national level. So if I become associated with one one side versus yeah. or the other that that might change reactions but uh, uh, I have not encountered any problems with that I'm thinking from my stance I've been working on a project with a couple other people where we're attempted to talk with the budget offices from different uh, locations and they've always been hesitant in part their pushback has always been well academics come in they kind of ask questions they focus on what they want give nothing back uh-huh. and yeah. so they've become a little bit more resistant over time to that mm-hmm. well i think that's uh, th- th- there is a reason for that reaction mm-hmm. uh because uh they may not hear anything back you know that can uh, that can show up in terms of interacting with citizens and community organizations as well uh researchers will ask ask people to share information and spend time on projects but never give them any feedback. Um, and so there is, um, 
there was increased interest in citizen involvement generally in public administration, but that responsibility applies to academic, academics as well. We need to share our research. Yeah. Okay. I was going to just mention the other, I talked about one, one, one thing that kept the council manager mm -hmm. and, and local government, form of government uh, uh, research of interest as it evolved over time. But another direction that, that I took from um, really from that examination uh, began in you know, teaching classes of trying to understand what are the roles of the manager, what are the responsibilities of the managers, what should they do. What should they not do, which in time led to an interest in administrative ethics. Uh, and um, I developed the first course in, in ethics at UNCG as part of the MPA program. Uh, but that was a new area for me as well. Again, another opportunity uh, created <laughs> by the necessity of, of having a course in that area. But it was um, it, it was helpful to be able to start that inquiry and ground uh, right. those explorations in a, a concrete position, uh, the role of the city manager who uh, has uh, enormous potential influence and, uh, and enormous responsibility that goes along with that. Also, uh, the International City County Council Management Association has a code of ethics and has from since the 1920s, uh, which is really a very long very, very long period of time. Most professional organizations did not develop codes uh, that far back. So I was looking at how it had evolved over time, particularly how it dealt with the, with the policy role, uh, got me more and more into the area of administrative ethics, and that has become a separate focus um, that departs from it, is not limited to local government uh, as, a, as, a, as a location. I didn't tell you ahead of time, I was doing some work with one of the civil military relations units of the Airborne over at Fort Bragg last May, mm -hmm. um, who was preparing to go off into northwestern Africa to work in local communities to try and keep or build them up so ISIS would have a little bit of hesitation from going into there. And one of the things in talking with them that they kept bringing up was the Savara Ethics Triangle. It gave me a little bit of a start. I was like, where in the world did you pick that up? But that was something that at some point in their training had been passed along to them. Okay, well, uh, it, it was not my direct efforts that did that. <laughs> I did come up with the ethics triangle, uh, but it was a doctoral student at, uh, in, at, at North Carolina State, uh, Jack Kim, uh, who uh, had, had had, I mean, had, was in the military and uh, continues to be in, in, in military training. Uh, he's in Kansas at this point, uh, but Jack has used the, the ethics triangle extensively, and uh, so he's the direct link to people okay. in the military who know about it. Huh. Did not know that. I mean, I was blown away by the fact that they were bringing it up. There's always the kind of, I think, interest of we go into public administration kind of wanting to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I will fully admit, I find the research that I do fairly interesting. I would probably, very few people besides myself, probably find the type of stuff that I do interesting. There's a story by the Smithsonian looking at the utility of research in the social sciences and that almost half of research articles actually never get read by anybody. And so there's this kind right. of downside of, well, we want to make a difference, but how much of a difference are we actually making? And then all of a sudden, you know, here's people talking you know, from the practical side 
who I was like, where in the world did they pick it up? But it was still kind of neat to hear. Mm -hmm. um, if you would, can you give me kind of the 90 seconds understandings of what the ethics triangle is, considering a lot of literatures might not know? Right. Well, it represented, um, you know, my effort to try to master this, 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 mm -hmm. this, subfield uh, uh, within public administration uh, and beyond that uh, I did not have that much background in. It also, I think, illustrates the importance of, of teaching as it relates to intellectual development. Uh, that was an issue we would talk about, and the ethics triangle actually uh, first appeared. I don't know whether it was on a blackboard in Greensboro or, or, or a whiteboard <laughs> at NC State, uh, but it, uh, it was something that we worked out in, in exchanges with students, representing the, the triangle represents the three major sources of ethical guidance. Uh, one is principles that provide clear sort of directions about, about what one should do. One is virtues, those qualities that an individual uh, has that they, should, that, that they should live by and be true to. And then finally, the, the, the third perspective is consequences, assessing what the impact is uh, and uh, the consequentialist view that the ethical thing to do is what produces the greatest good for the greatest number. And uh, I think lots of ethical issues have to be looked at uh, and ethical behavior generally, uh, drawing on those three sources. Um, and um, in, in later versions of that, and, uh, and in, a, in a book that I finally wrote on, on ethics in, in, 2000, in 2006 um, called The Ethics Primer, uh, I also identified a core area uh, which, is, which is called duty. Uh, and duty really, again, is shaped by those three by those three factors, principles, virtues, and, uh, and impacts um, as shaped by the responsibilities of the office that one holds. Okay. It, I know you've done a lot of work in terms of ASPA's code of ethics. Has that kind of stemmed from the past work in terms of developing the triangle sure. or? Right, that and um, you know, I think continuing, you know, some continuing work that I had done um, looking at uh, the role that the ethics had played in ASPA and how it needed to be developed in the future. And then in 2012, I was invited by the president of ASPA to co-chair uh, a code of ethics revision project. Um, and uh, with, uh, with Jim Norton, a practitioner uh, in California, and a group of about 25 or 30 people, something that couldn't, could, we couldn't have operated that way in the old days of interpersonal communications, but uh, with, new, uh, with, with new linkages through the internet, we had this large group that, uh, that, that uh, really interacted at a very intense level looking at the existing code of ethics that had not been revised since 1994 uh, and, uh, and identifying what elements should be retained, what should be added, how should it be refined, how should it be presented. Uh, so that became a big project in itself uh, and then has led to continuing, continuing activities. Um, I was able to to do a revised, a second edition of the ethics primer and incorporated the new ethics material in it. Um, uh, but uh, I've continued to work with the with ASPA as it's developed its uh, uh, ethics and practice uh, uh, committee uh, and uh, and still serve on that on that committee. Okay. I know you've done some stuff in terms of, or at least there's a paper in JPEG focusing on how to utilize that code of ethics or incorporate it 
into the classroom. Right, and it's uh, and 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 I think the argument that that's made in that uh, article is that um, programs seem to be uh, sort of uncertain about how to proceed with ethics. NASPA before the uh, the revision of guidelines in what, 2006. Um, had used to have a course-oriented approach to building knowledge, and there an ethics course and uh, and uh, related courses uh, were required, and so programs would specify uh, what they were what they were doing. That's why programs were adding mm-hmm. ethics courses in order to be ready to to meet accreditation. But with the new guidelines, the focus shifted to an emphasis on promoting public service values. And the the attention, the linkage to ethics has been weakened. Uh, and uh, the article in JPay, looking at self-study programs that have been submitted, uh, shows that the values are this kind of diverse array of, of ideas that are being more or less promoted uh, in programs, but not very clearly and not directly linked to what the, what the behavioral implications of those values are. I think, I know that NASPA is looking at standards now, and I hope that it will re-examine this portion of it uh, to re-emphasize ethics. Um, there, the, the key, I think, is already in NASPA's uh, guidelines and its definition of competency. And we talk about organizing the, uh, the curriculum around core competencies. Uh, competency means Carrying out tasks, carrying out tasks ethically and effectively. Those are the terms that uh, that NASPA has used uh, in its glossary, and I think that what that suggests is that we need to examine the ethical dimension uh, that's present in every course uh, in the curriculum. Certainly, every core course uh, in the in the comp- key competencies. It is also useful to have a freestanding ethics course, and that's becoming less and less common. Uh, but what are the ethical issues that can, can arise in each of the in each of the core areas, um, and how do those get resolved? And it turns out that there is good course, very close correspondence between the ASPA code uh, and those core competencies. Uh, and so in that sense, the ASPA code can provide guidance uh, in how one ad- identifies and addresses those issues. Why is it you think that we've had this move away from the ethics focus within MPA programs more towards that public service focus? Well... I think it was a move toward flexibility. Uh, they wanted to be more open to a wider variety of programs, uh, public policy-oriented programs, uh, nonprofit programs. They wanted to be, I think, more have more potential for inviting programs in other countries uh, to get involved. And so there seemed to be a sense that that, that focusing too much on ethics was too prescriptive and so the, uh, the the approach needed to be needed to be brought that issue of, of uh, multiple countries by the way is a key issue if there's going to be a requirement that, uh, that that ethical standards be incorporated in the curriculum but I think every program ought to be able to articulate uh, what is the what are the core ethical principles in your country in your society that you draw upon and transmit uh, to your students and yeah, there's a ongoing debate or discussion in terms of there's a couple MPA programs from places in the Middle East or who aren't necessarily from democratic countries. 
and there's been a pushback from having or allowing them to apply to become a NASPA member in part because they're missing that democratic value of you know, democracy and that that doesn't fit with the public service value of expectation that we have. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know the best way of you know, phrasing it, but almost if we've moved away from that ethical side to the public service side, you know, to me, it seems if we focus on the ethics side, then we can better incorporate people from different backgrounds into mm-hmm. the discussion and allow them to come in and you know, join in the public administration conversation of NASPA or ASPA or whatever kind of realm we want that to be. Whereas if we focus on the public service values, it then becomes a, well, which, which group of public are we talking about and whose values? Yes, although, you know, the, the range of values that are being presented are so d- diffuse, yeah. it's not clear anybody would be uh, excluded. I think the greater concern is that if students are not um, approaching the, the mastery of methods, uh, of techniques, um, without considering their responsibility as agents of the state mm-hmm. to serve the public. Uh, that is a responsibility that ought to be promoted, even if there's not a democratic process for selecting uh, elected officials. And if there's, and if that's, uh, you know, and if that's absent from the curriculum, if, if there are no uh, ethical standards, uh, then that does raise concerns about about whether the, the program is meeting um, the the core values of of, of NASPA. Yeah, I'm thinking back to my own MPA program when I um, at different points in time, so I took Jim Bowman's ethics course, uh-huh. and it was definitely a very different experience. I was a philosophy minor in undergrad. So you know, I had a philosophical ethics course in that class as well, which came back kind of the mentality of whatever I makes fun of philosophy for as well. Everything just depends. Um, and you know, Jim came back and said, well, it depends, but that doesn't mean we still can't reach a best decision given the circumstances in which it depends in and the utility of thinking it within the context of public administration and thinking about how we manage the government is everything is going to be so variable and up in the air that sometimes we still have to kind of come out with that satisfied answer of here's what's going to be the best best ethical choice or the best decision in that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that you know dealing with a complex issue like that points to the importance of having a standalone ethics course. Mm-hmm. Um, in separate courses throughout the curriculum, you need to deal with cases uh, and examine what the ethical standards are that relate to budgeting, that relate to doing public surveys and what kind of information uh, represent valid results and so on. Um, but to, to understand the nature of ethics, to understand how to, how to develop a... Um, you know, kind of guidelines uh, for dealing with ethical issues to come not just with this, with not just to satisfy, uh, but to come to an ethically balanced decision that requires in-depth exploration yeah. in a separate course. Now, if you had somebody who was came up to you from a different school who they didn't have a separate course, so a lot of schools like when I first came out and taught at IU South Bend. We didn't have a separate ethics course, but the argument was, well, there's a little bit of ethics that gets incorporated in every course. As somebody who was going into a program as a junior faculty and was in that kind of situation, what kind of advice would you give them in terms of how to approach the issue of ethics from a 
not a standalone course, but that it's been incorporated into a course in order to kind of still meet these same uh, principles? Well, actually, um, we have developed with the as part of the ethics review process and then the ongoing implementation stage of, of uh, ethics uh, in ASPA, we've developed a workbook uh, that helps to explain uh, what each of the principles in the, uh, in the code represent. Uh, and there is also, related to each principle, uh, self-assessment questions. And we haven't thought about how that would be used uh, by a faculty member in developing a course, but it would be very appropriate to that. Again, the, the faculty member would think not about, you know, what is my work responsibilities, what citizens I work with, mm -hmm. rather what is my course uh, and what, what, how does my course uh, have a bearing on understanding and promoting the public interest. What elements of my course relate to uh, observing the law and uh, and um, accepting, re recognizing the responsibility to recommend changes in the law uh, if that would be if that would be appropriate, or citizen engagement, or social equity, or virtues and so on. So it's not that each course will cover the whole the whole code, but rather you'd identify what those relevant aspects are uh, and then how can they how they could be incorporated into the course content. Okay. Uh, don't think I've actually uh, knew that there was a, a, a workbook on ethics, so I made myself a little sticky note over here to look it up afterwards. Okay. Um, it's on and, and there is now one of the changes that ASPA has made to give more prominence to ethics. Mm -hmm. When you go to the ASPA website, there is now a code of ethics uh, uh, label uh, among those at the top of the page. You used to have to, to search for it, uh, and it's one of the resources listed on the code of ethics page. And we can also put a link to that in the details of the description for the podcast to make Good. it a little bit easier for everybody Good. to get to as well. Good. Um, huh. I'm now trying to think of the code of ethics in the classes I teach. Um, uh -huh. Well, you know, I think one one shortcoming to the to this to the common argument here is that, oh we deal with ethics uh, in, in every course. Well how do you deal with ethics in every course? Let's, let's do a catalog. Uh, and uh, and are you covering all the issues that should be covered? How are they and how are they, they being covered? Um, so I think that should be part of the self-study process that programs go through. When you go through the self-study you think about everything from you know, matching with NASPA's you know, standards to what you're teaching and, and everything that kind of you know, falls into that. Mm -hmm. But I don't really think, you know, at South Bend, we certainly, and we're getting ready to go through our self-study here. The conversation really hasn't been around, you know, the ethics, but we haven't really incorporated that conversation around ethics into what goes on. It's just been more of the, well, it gets kept talked about in every class mm -hmm. a little bit, but I'm trying to think of my budgeting class. I don't really know if that really talk about ethics, but my mm -hmm. goal in budgeting is it's not about the individual, it's about the process. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, here's how you do it because we all have independent per perceptions and things that we would like to see the money going to, but our job as a budgeter is not to impose your perception, it's to take what the uh, city council or the managers or whoever it is, you know, what they want you to do and then figure out how to get them, get them there. Mm -hmm. uh, well, think about the, the core issues of effectiveness and efficiency. Do they have equal standing? In ethical terms, they do not. Effectiveness is, is achieving the purposes that the policy or the law uh, has articulated. You don't, 
you don't sacrifice purpose in order to increase efficiency. They're not co-equals in that sense. Given purpose, you can examine and should examine uh, how do we most efficiently achieve these purposes, uh, achieve the highest level of effectiveness. Uh, but, you know, I think you can clearly think of, of uh, cases that could be developed that where, where uh, program effectiveness gets sacrificed in the name of increasing efficiency. Yeah, or even the opposite that you can have, you want to have something that is massively efficient, but there's absolutely no effectiveness whatsoever. Well, um, yeah, that, that too, that too. The, you know, the core responsibility to accomplish the legal purposes of government uh, mean that that effectiveness uh, value uh, and, and, and the uh, ethical standards associated with that uh, have to be paramount. Uh, and then uh, the efficiency is an instrumental goal that helps to, to promote those ends. Huh. Okay, I can see that. In terms of kind of, since we are kind of uh, getting close to the end of time, for somebody who was a PhD student or a junior faculty looking either to kind of start doing research in the area around administrative ethics or in former government, where would you kind of push them to? You know, what questions are the big questions that still need answering? Well, I, I would suggest that um, they find ways to get involved uh, and, and start in, in expanding their own insight. Uh, as I was thinking about this interview, I was kind of thinking, oh, what, what was it that um, was important in promoting my own development? Mm -hmm. And I think it really was involvement. I had the real uh, advantage of uh, being asked as a new faculty member to create a summer internship program uh, for, for undergraduates. And that meant I need to go to City Hall, I need to go to county government, I needed to get to know people and departments and what they do. Um, so what are the ways, uh, you know, if you're in, what, what citizen groups are involved? What are the issues that are being considered in, in your community? Uh, and try to understand the, the process uh, and see what kinds of questions that generates. Uh, since, uh, since retirement and moving after the North Carolina uh, uh, positions at UNC Greensboro and NC State, uh, I was at Arizona State for six years. And when, I, when we returned to North Carolina, I was, was retired at that point and had an opportunity to get involved in community issues as a common citizen. Uh, and that provides a different perspective too uh, than my interaction with local officials or with groups uh, as a representative of the university, as a faculty member. Uh, so I think that looking for opportunities to see issues, uh, understand process, from the perspective of those who are who are living it uh, is a good way to generate questions you then realize that you, you need to figure out and need to explore. You know, kind of putting this in the context almost of you know the history of PA, kind of almost fairly like it what the Bureau of Municipal Research uh, did out of New York, where their focus was on sitting around and observing kind of what the government does and then going from there and testing and kind of probing what they have said that they're doing or what they're saying that they're being faced with to figure out what the questions are rather than kind of starting with here's what my is kind of sitting around in my head as this might be interesting mm -hmm. no i think that's an important point and um you know we we separate uh, conceptually the 
sort of the policy world from particularly from the management dimension, but uh, certainly the service delivery and implementation. Um, but but you, you learn in administrative activities, uh, you identify issues with policy that might need new examination. Um, and uh, and so we're, we're learning from that from that experience and can use that to guide policy development. Cool. Well, thank you for joining me. I was happy to be here, and uh, good luck to uh, good luck to you with this project.